This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You want a thriving marriage, and yet maybe you and your spouse find yourselves more defensive than curious? Maybe you feel more like roommates than lovers. You're conflicted, not connected. You have more distrust than intimacy. You've probably read all the books. Maybe you've attended conferences. You know your marriage needs more than that, but you don't necessarily want to start traditional marriage counseling. The Thrive Marriage Lab is the solution between books and counseling. Serving up hope, not prescriptions. Once a year, the door opens to join this unique 12-month journey. Led by experienced marriage counselors, members receive live and recorded monthly engagement through an intentional pathway guaranteed to lead to more curiosity, more intimacy, and more connection. As a faithful listener to our podcast, you get $20 off each month when you use code HALES, H-A-L-E-S, go to restory.life slash thrive to learn more and join today. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast to help Christian leaders map a changing cultural landscape in the 21st century. Join us, Bryce and Ashley Hales, pastor and PhD, as we discuss with our guests how to cultivate fruitful and resilient lives and communities. Listen in. Welcome back to The Cartographers. We are excited to be back with you today. We are in the uh, we're in a series that we're calling uh, Pulling Back the Curtain where we're talking about uh, worship and what worship does in the life of Christians and uh, we've been um, drawing a contrast in this series. We want to talk about the way that worship forms us and and what does it mean to to think about worship as something that forms us, because I think that our tendency is to think about worship as uh, in, in consumeristic terms. So we we can think about going to uh, worship at church uh, in terms of uh, do I like this? Uh, what does this feel like? What am I getting out of this? Is is often the language that we use, and you know none of those are terrible questions in and of themselves, I just think that they're not, um, a lot more is going on when we think about worship. And so we've had some great conversations already in this series. We've uh, started off by just really diving into that distinction between a, a formational approach to worship and a consumer-driven approach to worship. In our, in our last episode, we spoke with Kurt Thompson about the ways that worship, uh, about community, but also the way that suffering shapes us as God's people. And uh, today we want to dive into the question of what else is forming us. Um, Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton famously said that when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. 
And uh, I, I think that's such a powerful thing for us to think about. So what are we actually being formed by? What is it, if, if it's not worship that is shaping us, uh, even as 21st century Christians, what are the things that are shaping us? And um, so we're going to talk about technology today and, uh, and the role of technology and how it isn't just a, a tool that we use, but it's actually something that's, that's having a formative effect in the way that we uh, live our lives. And so um, I just want to read before we dive in here, Ashley, um, a quote from a, a book called The Leader's Journey. And it's, it's talking about uh, why this concept of formation is so important. And really what this quote that I'm going to read is talking about is the way that we, by the time we're teenagers or in our 20s, uh, we have been formed in certain ways. And this is what this book says. The, what gives our first formation, that which happens in our childhood, so much power is that the habits that we develop happened mostly outside of our conscious awareness. As children, our brains had not yet developed the capacity to think abstractly, so every experience was concrete. Our first formation behaviors develop early and become so habitual that we don't think of them as habits. The habits insert themselves into our brains so deeply that our responses become automatic, like blinking or breathing. They happen below the level of our consciousness. It's an automatic way of responding in relationships, especially when things become tense or anxious. And so, again, that quote's talking about the way that we sort of emerge into adolescence and adulthood. Um, but, but in a broader sense, it's talking about why we need to be talking about formation. Because even as adults, we're adopting new habits, new preferences, new uh, that, that that shape us, and then they become like that that reflexive response when the driver cuts us off, right? Or um, you know, what is it that comes out of us? So that's what we're going to be diving into today, and uh, you're going to get us thinking a little bit about technology. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot, of course, about technology as a parent, um, as a person, and, you know, the screen battle seems like something we are always dealing with our teenagers as well as our younger children. Um, and this isn't to say that technology is evil, but it is something that we're particularly needing to reckon with, and especially even, Bryce, you talking about that formational moment, right, the ways in which our brains and our our habits are formed, especially in childhood and um, adolescence, really affects how we cope, how we deal with uh, suffering, how we deal with change and transition um, as grownups as well. So um, one thing I have wanted to bring to our attention is Jonathan Haidt has a book coming out this March called The Anxious Generation. He's been writing on Substack a lot of his sociological research, and he he in that book he, he writes this, there, there are two trends. He says there's the increasing overprotection in the real world and underprotection in an increasingly exploitative online world. So in other words, parents are both overprotecting 
in the real embodied world, as well as under protecting in an online world. And he says, these are the major reasons why children born after 1995 become the anxious generation. There are many factors contributing to mental illness in any particular child, but when adolescent mental illness increases at the same time in many countries, you need to find causes affecting childhood and adolescence that cross borders and oceans. And what is that? It's technology. Um, and so it's a really fabulous book, and I just really want to bring it to our, our listeners' attention. It's available for pre-order, and it's it's a great, actually, practical guide, and it is helpful not just for parents. If you're wondering, you know, as an adult about the speed of technological change, I think height is really helpful in talking about how these um, kind of overprotected, um, that were scared, that, you know, children aren't able to like wander and go play outside. Um, even, you know, even just our news cycles being so doom and gloom all the time begins to help us think that we're actually unsafe in our neighborhoods. Um, and so Jonathan Haidt is a really helpful thinker in that way. But I want to kind of dive into what is it? Can, I, can what, I just ask before we, I, I'm curious about the year 1995. So help me connect some of the dots. Like 1995, um, you know, the smartphone, uh, like the iPhone comes out in like what, like 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, so is it because uh, people born in 1995 were teenagers when, when smartphones start becoming ubiquitous? Is that the, is that the connection? Right. I think f- for Height and a lot of other folks, they, they talk specifically about in 2012 when, so they would have been in teenagers right at that point. But in 2012 is when we have the forward facing camera on the iPhone. And that particularly for girls is one of the things that leads uh, to a cataclysmic kind of uh, drop in mental um, health. Right. So, so a lot of it is, you know, being the first generation of teenagers where they're choosing instead of going out into the world and, and actually experiencing risk in their bodies, right. That they are, um, recipients of un, unhelpful um, and unhealthy risk uh, online. So, you know, as we think about what is actually happening, though, in our brains um, and in our minds, I, I found I came across something from Ted Goya um, on his Substack, and we'll go ahead and link it in the show notes. But what he's talking about is a shift from what we would say is like art versus entertainment or even um, technology as a tool. What he is talking about is the way in which um, our brains are becoming increasingly fashioned for dopamine. A dopamine culture is what he talks about. And he has some really fascinating ways of thinking about it that I want to bring our attention to. He talks about the way in which a dopamine, that there is like a dopamine loop that actually happens. And the way he describes it is, you know, you see a stimulus and you're distracted, you have a release of dopamine, you experience pleasure, therefore you have a desire for more, and so that's reinforced, and then that becomes a habit formation, and that, as that habit is formed, is actually what produces addiction. So I think we can tend to think of just being distracted, like, um, and getting that dopamine release, but what's happening, especially amongst adolescents, is this constant need not only for, like, entertainment, um, and distraction on a screen, but that it's actually forming like these habit loops. So he he writes this, 
Instead of movies, users get served up an endless sequence of 15-second videos. Instead of symphonies, listeners hear bite-sized melodies, usually accompanied by one of these tiny videos, just enough for a dopamine hit and no more. This is the new culture, and its most striking feature is the absence of culture with a capital C or even mindless entertainment. Both get replaced by compulsive activity. And I think that compulsive activity is really important. And later on in his Substack, he has stuff like, okay, so let's say back in the day when it came to athletics, you would play a sport. In a fast modern culture, you're going to watch a sport on TV. But now in a dopamine culture, you're going to gamble on a sport or music before you would listen to an album. Fast modern culture kind of split that apart. So it's only listening to certain tracks. <laughs> and now we don't even listen to a full song, right? This drives um, we me listen, nuts when know. we're in the car with our <laughs> with our kids. And I'm like, can we just listen to a, a whole song, right. please? Right, right, I want right. to hear the beginning. I want to hear the fade out at the end. Right. Please. Right. right. And so what I think what's so important to note is the way that technology, this dopamine habit forming kind of culture, right, is like we can't even listen to a song. And so... What that has meant is that we, that is forming our attention into bite-sized dopamine hits. And so what that means, I think, is that it's going to produce folks who are less resilient, who even like can't suffer or like go through hard things without turning to the phone or something else to give them that quick dopamine hit, or even that they're not able to experience joy. And that's the part as a parent particularly, that really freaks me out given like emerging consciousness, right? Like I remember so many things in my adolescent years. I wrote some really bad poetry and some really bad stories and I was immersed in books and and so much of my experience um, creatively and also spiritually, like I read the Bible when I was 13 all the way through. So much of my formation happened, you know, through that wrestling long, slow, boring periods of time. So I think it's just really important to note, just to summarize here, yes, technology is a tool, and yet we need to understand that the context in which we are walking into worship is formed more and more towards a not just fast-moving technological speed, but a dopamine hit-inducing kind of moderated reality. Yeah, so it sounds like a big port of the concern maybe around technology uh, and the way it's shaping us is something radically different is happening with technology uh, beginning around 2012 or so. I, I you know, remember uh, I'm like the youngest Gen Xer, right? So born in 1980. And, um, but, you know, there, and in some ways we think of it, Gen X as the MTV generation, right? And so I remember parents being concerned about just sitting and watching TV. And, and that feels so mild compared to what we're talking about now because it's not, it's not the, um, I, the, the way that I could watch like six episodes of Saved by the Bell on four different channels over, you know, <laughs> right, three right. hours. And if I stayed home from school sick one day or something like that now, that was still a, like I was doing things in 30 minute increments. There's a story arc that you're watching from beginning to completion, which is just drastically different than the sort of... Um, fear of missing out that's yeah, constantly the, being right and the quick fed. scroll right uh, like yeah and so yeah. yeah it's 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 less even about 
passive entertainment and the technology is shifting us more towards like this constant search for the next dopamine hit. Yeah. So what do you think we, what do we do? I mean, well, so yeah, I, I do think we, we need to, we need to sort of say here, like we're not advocating for some sort of Luddite retreat, like unless you're going to go uh, full Amish, which we're not, uh, recommending <laughs> like you are listening to this podcast <laughs> your, right like you're listening to a podcast that's we're not even people don't even realize this that we're not in the same room when we record uh you know like we're using technology you're listening to this on technology so that, that that's not what we're um talking about but i think that um we also have to acknowledge that uh, the solution isn't just to sort of toss out the technology. Not not uh, many days ago, in a moment of parenting frustration, I suggested to our kids that if we couldn't sort of make some of these changes and interact with each other over a three-day weekend and have just positive, non-argumentative <laughs> conversations, that I would be happy to just take everybody's phone and throw them all out in the street. And um, they did not love that option, but it didn't <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to get into the results, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but but th- th- this is the world that we live in, and so I think mm-hmm. just from a practical standpoint, um, you know, there's good conversations for parents to have about the ages at which, you know, your kids get a phone, and is that a flip phone? Is it a smartphone? All, all, social media, all that kind of stuff. Like parents have to make those decisions, and Jonathan Hyde is providing some really helpful information on how to think through those things. But the reality is this is the world that we live in. We are, we are people just, we know we're created for community. We are wired for connection. And the, the benefit of technology, the technology we have now, is that it allows us to be connected um, so quickly and so easily. Um, the problem, I think, in many ways becomes when we begin to think of technology as something different than a tool. Um, yeah. You know, like I, I, one's we were life. talking <laughs> earlier. Yeah. Well, I was just kind of saying somewhat facetiously that like, it's not like the first person that invented a plow suddenly became like, a, a, um, you know, malformed in all these ways. I can't hold yep. my attention or anything like this right, because right, I'm not, right. uh, can't interact using with this people in person because yeah. I have yeah. this plow instead of digging, you know, uh, furrows in my field with my hands or something like that. <laughs> um, technology is a tool. Um, but what that means is that technology should be serving us. And, um, Gosh, was it in the Social Dilemma documentary that um, uh, they point out that the only industries that refer to their clients as users are uh, are technology and drug dealers? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So, um, who who's using whom in this uh, scenario is a is an important um, thing for us to think about because, I mean, we even had this moment a couple of. Uh, a couple of days ago where one of our kids was at school um, without his phone uh, for the day. And then he went to his practice after school and we're sort of like, where is he? And when is he getting home? And we're all getting anxious. And I, we just looked, said to each other, like, this is what our parents dealt with in the eighties and nineties, like as a matter of routine, you know, and we right. don't know, 
where the where the child is for <laughs> an hour, and you know we start to panic. Um, but but what are these? What are these tools designed to do, and how are they helping us, uh, or are they helping us, or, or or rather, how do we use them in such a way that they help us, um, you know, build relationships, foster community? Um, I mean, ultimately, um, strive for for the glorification of God together, rather than. Um, being sort of used by them because we know that the people who are producing them, their interests are to just keep us using them. Like the, the longer we use them, the more money um, advertisers, et cetera, make. So um, there's some reasons why we're not advocating just abandoned technology. Um, but I also just want to say, like, I think it's sort of theologically, biblically naive to take the approach of just don't give your kids a smartphone. Like that's that's not the, that might be a good application in the short run. <laughs> that's not the solution to this problem. Uh, and in many ways, you know, Ashley, we, we, you and I have been working on a, a Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount together. And um, one of Alex, the things... Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that um, we keep coming back to is that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that it's, it's, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so um, getting rid of social media, getting rid of smartphones, getting rid of technology uh, does not fundamentally change our hearts. Like, let me just give a quick practical you know, example, I think often when I have tried like, okay, I'm just not going to have my phone around or something, you know, I usually am not replacing it with good things. You know, like when you fast, you can often then just use something else, right? But your heart stays the same. So whether it is like, oh, I won't eat sugar. And then you're like, but I can have, you know, all this bread and butter, you know, like, you know, right. <laughs> so we just right. trans. I didn't drink alcohol today, right. so I can gorge myself on potato chips. Right. So we just like transfer the same, like the thing, the things transfer, but the heart stays the same. Right. Right. And I, I do think there's a reality that some of what our technological progress has brought us to is the place where, and, and this is where it becomes a formational issue, is that we become just impatient. We become enable to uh, respond to things not going the way that we wanted or going the way we expected quickly enough. Um, and so that, that is definitely, and then we, we become habituated to getting what we want immediately, and that's not actually reality. Um, but, but certainly in a bigger sense, we, we can't expect that holiness is going to emerge when we just uh, step back from, from you know, smartphones or whatever. As someone who wants to improve their marriage, you know there's a lot out there about how to have a stronger relationship. There are books and conferences, marriage counseling. Our friends at Restory Counseling have created something unique in the Thrive Marriage Lab. More than a book and a weekend conference, but not quite marriage counseling. Far more than a library of videos and teaching. In Thrive, marriage counselors are walking a path with you, 
live. Our friends at ReStory believe that there are 12 categories that lead to marital growth. In Thrive, they've created a year-long journey that leads to the connection in your marriage that you long for. That's why they open up Thrive once a year, so that they can walk with you on this path from the beginning. Go to restory.life thrive to learn more and join today. Use code HALES, H-A-L-E-S, for $20 off every month as a friend of our podcast. It's true, you can keep searching Google and sifting through all the advice about how to develop a deeper connection with your spouse, or you can join the lab where you'll find professional counselors facilitating conversations for just you and your spouse and where other couples can offer you a community of support. Go to restory.life slash thrive to learn more and join today and use the code HALES for $20 off every month. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And, you know, I wanted to bring up the way that if, you know, we're thinking about this is the context, right? Technology and this dopamine culture is the context in which we live. So how does worship actually form us differently? And I think part of what we need to remember is that like the practice of the worshiping church is actually kind of boring, right? Like it happens all the time. Like it's not all flashy. Like Bryce, I think you were saying before we started recording, like, you know, Apple is always going to do this way better and Google's going to do it way better. And so like the church can't, can't be like, Oh, we just yeah. need to actually the, the approach. Say more about that. The approach to, to church and worship that sort of says, well, this is the culture that we live in. Therefore we've got to, you know, be cooler <laughs> it, <laughs> right. it is just a bummer. <laughs> a losing say, battle. It's a losing the, battle. Because a wrong we, battle. Uh, local congregations, I don't care how big your church is, you don't have the resources available that the uh, entertainment industry does. And it's always going to feel like you're seven years behind the time, even when you're super cutting edge in the world of, of Christianity. But that's not actually the problem. The, the problem is that when we take that approach, we're sort of ad- adopting the world's formational strategy and trying to hijack it towards the ends of Jesus. And it's fundamentally not going to work because we're, we're taking formational strategies 
that are designed to that are not designed to foster community that are not designed to uh, build character that are not designed to glorify God and we're trying to use them to get us to be people of character who like sacrifice for the good of one another in order to glorify God and it, it just fundamentally is going to break down it's not going to work and so I this is why I appreciate what you just said and just acknowledging um, the reality that I, I, I saw this uh, David Fairchild is a pastor who I'm Facebook friends with and he, he said this a couple of months ago he said if you're part of a faithful church it is going to be possible to battle boredom it takes courage for the church to repeat the same trustworthy truths week in and week out. And, you know, you can talk about, okay, so what do we do with that? But I think just beginning by acknowledging that as a reality, we live in a world where boredom is the worst thing you can do because as soon as somebody gets bored and stops the scroll, then they're going to move on to something different. And I think we have to have the courage to actually say, you know, there is a sense in which faithfully, regularly engaging in worship with the same people at the same church, uh, week in and week out, 52 Sundays a year. Like if you if you're doing that and you never think, oh, this is kind of the same as it was last week and last month, <laughs> um, yeah. you're probably not paying attention. But that's okay. Or you're maybe a new convert. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Because I think, there's something I think else the, going on in worship. Yeah. And what what we really want to get to is this that worship forms us into an immersive reality that's both vertical and horizontal through the worshiping life of the church, through the liturgy. So what I mean by that is is this that we can we can have like alternate realities right on our phone <laughs> but the real real reality right is is the story of god who has created the world good and who um when his people have fallen into sin and shame comes to meet his people most ultimately in the person of jesus christ to bring his kingdom to bear right even though we don't fully experience it um but that all of the ways in which the worshiping church is actually like a foretaste of God's kingdom being fully restored, which will happen at the end of time. And that is the real reality. And so, and it seems like, wow, that should be like lights and something fantastic and really like screen driven, right? <laughs> but it's really boring, right? It's, you know, we see in the liturgy. I mean, it's like ordinary. It's ordinary. You're right. Yeah. Um, it doesn't like, let's not better. camp. It doesn't have to be uh, boring. Right. <laughs> true. True. <laughs> it can be beautiful and artistic and moving and subtle. And yes, all of these things. But you know that there is a story that we're invited into as the worshiping life um, that happens on a Sunday. So there is usually right a call to worship. We, we are set apart that this time is special, that we are called to worship a triune omniscient, omnipresent God. And that is insane and fantastic. And there are moments, right, of prayer where we are called to address and to praise this God and moments of of song and that there that then there's confession, right? That we are then brought into when we see the perfection of God, we are then realize, hey, like I am messed up. I can't be amongst a holy God. And I realize all the ways in which I have failed 
um, by what I've done and what I've failed to do. So we are invited to confess together. We're invited to listen to God's word. That is the thing that should form us um, through the preaching of the word to not only understand, but to like embody and say, this is our story. We're, then we're also like invited into seeing a picture of it in the sacraments that we taste and see that God is good. We taste redemption. We take it into our bodies. And then we are, of course, also invited to give. We're invited to pray. We're invited to confess our faith. And we're sent out into the world with a benediction, with a good word. Um, and this like arc of there's there's heights, right? And there's depths. Um, and as we kind of rehearse this story, it reminds us who we are. And, and so I think worship is actually that immersive reality where we are somehow mysteriously communing with the with God the Father Son and Holy Spirit in that process as a community that forms us to then go be formational witnesses outside the walls of the church and we have to remember that's what is actually going on and it's really ordinary and it happens every single Sunday and it also unites us with the global church, right? Like around the world that, and then the historical church too. Like it's just mind blowing. Um, and as well, we get, and I think yeah, it's also, yeah. I think it's also important to say that the everything you just said wonderfully is is true, and yet for it to shape us in these true and beautiful ways, we actually have to engage in worship. We can't just like read a book about it or listen to a podcast about it. We can't just like know that this is what it's supposed to do. We actually have to be engaged in the, the worshiping life of the church to be shaped and formed by it. Um, such a simple, obvious thing and yet it's so profound one of the things that I, I, I sometimes have like to share with people is um, is uh, um, so a couple of years ago I clicked on this video on YouTube to sp speak about technology right um, <laughs> but clicked on this video of YouTube I don't know why I did but it said the best inter intersection in the world and I'm like I want to know what the best intersection what is in the, world the best is. intersection in the and, world <laughs> uh, because I heard about this Anyway, I heard about this underground roundabout in um, the Faroe Islands, and I thought maybe it was that one. But, uh, <laughs> but was, that's a whole other matter. But uh, it, it was talking about not the best one specific intersection, but the best kind of intersection in the world. And it, it was saying that the best sort of intersection in the world is a roundabout. And I thought, that's interesting because everybody hates roundabouts. And uh, we lived in Scotland um, early in our marriage, and so we came to embrace roundabouts and love them and so feel <laughs> superior to Americans who hate roundabouts. Um, and we know but, how to properly signal. <laughs> right. But why Why do people hate roundabouts? Um, and watching this video, they were explaining that the thing that makes roundabouts uh, best, the best kind of intersection, is because they force you to slow down. Um, now you can be drive if you're driving down a two you know four lane highway you can put up a sign that says speed limit 45 miles an hour but there's going to be people driving 65 75 miles an hour and if you are making a left and you get hit by a car going 75 miles an hour that's going to be really bad 
uh, a roundabout is great because it forces you to slow down. And you, you can't, I've tried this, you can't take a roundabout faster than about 18 miles an hour. Um, and, and so the only, and you're not going to get in a head on collision in a, in a roundabout. The worst you're going to get is like a low speed merge into. And so it might bend some sheet metal, but, um, the chance of like a fa fatal collision is going to be much, much lower. And so here's the point of all this. You're like, why are you talking about it? Okay. Here's the point of all this. The roundabout is the best intersection, not despite the fact that it's a pain, but actually because it's difficult. It's, it's because it's difficult that it forces you to slow down, that it actually does what it needs to do. And the point is this, that the church is not a healthy formational, like the, the worshiping church is not doing what it does despite the fact that it's what people have been doing for 2,000 plus years. It's, it's not doing it despite the fact that it's oftentimes difficult. It's actually doing it because it's oftentimes difficult. I mean, where else do we go, in, in especially in American but in Western culture, where we uh, engage with people of different generations, different classes, different races, um, and we're all there not to assert our own preferences over one another, but actually to join together in the common worship of the God who is greater than us. Um, and just being a part of that experience is polar, the polar opposite of being formed by technology that basically says you are the center of the universe at every moment. Uh, and so here's the thing. So we, we can talk about, about this. So, so what do we actually do and how do we actually change? And one of the things I've really appreciated, I, I came across Dallas Willard, um, this article he wrote about how people change. And he talks about um, vision, intention, and uh, I, I usually say methodology. I think he used the term means. Um, but, but what he was saying here is, if we're going to change, we have to have a vision for what change would look like. And so if we want to be shaped by worship more than by technology, then we have to actually have an idea of what that would look like. Um, and so clearly, in just a very simple sense, being a part of a local worshiping church is a, is a big part of that. Uh, then, then he talks about means, meaning you actually have to do things, <laughs> right? Uh, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. We can't just read the book and be like, got it, I'm shaped, formed now. But in between, he talks about intention, and this just like turned on a light bulb for me. When I, when I heard him talk about intention, I realized that in some ways I wonder if the intention piece is, is a big part of what many uh, Christians are missing out on, uh, because if, if we are sort of like going through the motions of showing up regularly for worship, um, but we don't really intend for it to shape us. We don't really intend for it to transform us into um, people who love God, who love our neighbors. Um, then I think what happens is we actually, um, we, we devalue worship in practice. So, so our, the means become less frequent. Um, and probably more consumeristic too. Right, right, right. So what, is, what are we intending 
to do as we engage in worship? Are we intending to sort of have this experience that fills us up and makes um, makes ourselves feel better about ourselves? Or are we intending to um, come to the throne of the living God together with his people uh, to, to behold again the glory of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ, uh, to, be, to be fed with his word and with the sacrament, and to be sent back out into the world as transformed people? Two radically different approaches to worship. And you can have two people sitting next to each other in a church service experiencing the same thing, but with different intentions, and the outcome will be radically different from one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think because, you know, I think even as we bring about, if we think about it in terms of technology too, and, you know, if, if we have no vision, right, for our lives, <laughs> which is technology can sweep in, right? And, and without even noticing it, that we become addicted. And so we, we focus all our uh, thing on, on the device itself, right? We we're like, we have no vision. We're not actually making any concrete intentions. And so the means of living a life um, becomes dominated by technology. Um, but if we have a vision for the kingdom of God, that we see ourselves in the wider story, if we intend to show up for the body of Christ, uh, to worship God, then the means, right? Um, scripture, prayer, so many different things, right? Become part of what flows out of us. Mm-hmm. Let's let's finish with like a practical takeaway. If you're listening to this, maybe you're a Christian leader, maybe you're a, a parent, um, maybe you're an, another human being who is neither of those things, and that's wonderful, and we're glad you're here listening to us. But but what? Okay, what do I do? What what what's my takeaway? Yeah. You know, I'll just say, so as we're recording this, it's during the period of Lent and I decided to give up social media for Lent and I deleted them from my phone and I have not gone on Facebook marketplace to find some cool thing, um, on my computer either. But what I've noticed from fasting from technology, um, particularly from social media platforms is like, I don't miss it at all. And actually (laughs) I'm like, this is fantastic. Um, You know, I would find myself scrolling before bed. I would find myself like if I got, um, I was trying to figure out what is this next paragraph of an article I'm working on need to say, I would just, you know, easily go over and check out Instagram. And I'm realizing it's helping me think better. Um, But it's also ask, I'm asking this question, not just what am I fasting from, but what am I feasting on? And so I've tended to replace that um, with some novel reading a little bit. And I've made my way through um, a novel a lot quicker than I would uh, um, otherwise. So when you think about fasting and maybe even a Lenten fast, if you're fasting from technology, what are you feasting on is a great, great question. How about you, Bryce? I think that the other thing, I, I just want to comment on one thing you said that um, – you said like fasting from technology from social media. I haven't really missed it, but I think I think what's um, I just want to observe about that is that the nature of the technological devices and things that we're talking net- networks we're talking about is such that they sort of encourage us to tap into them in 
minute, bite-sized, you know, at any free moment. And so it's really hard to pull away from that without making the intentional practice to do it, right? Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean uh, give up technology for Lent or forever, but maybe it does mean there's a period, like maybe what this looks like is when we come home, you know, there's a two hour period of no technology until after dinner. And then we plug in our devices and go to bed or something like that. Uh, just again, the intention. Uh, okay. So the, the, my takeaway is this, I, um, I am just trying to notice what I'm filling myself with. Um, I have, I have noticed uh, a couple things about myself recently. One is that I feel like uh, you know, engagements in uh, social media, watching YouTube videos, etc. It's kind of gotten me to this point where I have a very hard time just sitting still. Or even if there's like, you know, like we finished dinner with our family and immediately like, what are we going to do now? Um, <laughs> like, we don't have to turn on a movie right away. We don't have to, can we, do we have the capacity to just sit uh, still and be with one another. So I feel like not paying attention uh, to what I'm filling myself with has just sort of um, made me an anxious, more an anxious person. And I'm just trying to be more um, cognizant of that. I think that's important. And because, yeah, we can, we can even fill ourselves with lots of good things, but still have that kind of like frenetic energy as well. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us today. We uh, have been talking about technology and how it functions really as a, a counter uh, formational practice to uh, Christian worship. And so we hope this has been helpful to you, that it's encouraging to you. We'd love to hear questions uh, from you if you have them, but we hope you're enjoying this series where we're pulling back the curtain on worship as formation. Uh, please, if this has been helpful, we'd appreciate it if you would share it with a friend, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. We want to leave you with something fun in each episode in the series. So we asked our favorite AI bot to think about titling this series. How would AI encourage us to pursue worship and formation? And we got some crazy options. And this week, here's just one. Chords of Change. Transformative worship for a world in need. Thanks for listening to The Cartographers. Please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. It takes just a second of your time and helps others find the cartographers so that we can all begin mapping and charting the 21st century cultural landscape for Christian leaders. <laughs>